All right, this morning again, as we've announced and uh, mentioned before, we're going to uh, leave our study of the book of Matthew just for uh, today. And then, of course, next Sunday, uh, uh, our missionary Tim Smith will be here, so we'll take a little break from our study in Matthew. Uh, but uh, I promise, the Lord willing, we'll get back to it. But this morning, we want to talk about Baptist heritage and pulpit freedom. You realize that uh, many of the freedoms that we enjoy today came because of some people who took a stand for the Lord Jesus Christ, and many of those were our Baptist uh, uh, preachers uh, during the early days of the founding of our country. During the days surrounding the American Revolution, Baptists used religion, religious arguments to make political points and political arguments to make religious points. At the same time Baptists argued for separation of church and state, they did not hesitate to preach on politic, uh, political topics or embrace patriotic causes with religious fervor. In a sense, uh, Baptists reflected their culture. Neither Thomas Jefferson nor Benjamin Franklin accepted Orthodox Christian teachings, but both used biblical language in the public statements they made. And even Thomas Paine, a deist, rationalist, cited Old Testament scripture in his widely distributed pamphlet called Common Sense. And so Thomas Paine realized common sense had to make biblical sense to the 18th century audience. And very similarly, Baptist preachers such as Isaac Bacchus and Samuel Stillman applied biblical texts and theological arguments to calls for civil and religious liberty. Even preaching on secular topics as specific as the repeal of the Stamp Act of 1765. And I know all this is familiar with you because you're historians, right? You remember your Baptist history from school. But in a widely reprinted 1772 sermon at Second Baptist Church in Boston, Pastor John Allen argued on scriptural grounds that the colonists needed to throw off the yoke of the monarchy and declare themselves an independent nation. Baptists saw themselves as patriots of all patriots. One of the colonists declared their independence and the, or once they did declare their independence and the American Revolutionary War began, Baptists rallied support from their pulpits and served as military chaplains. Now, you have to realize that back in those days when uh, they were trying to get word to everyone, most of the information that their congregation knew came from the pulpit. They did not have cell phones, they didn't have email, they didn't have televisions, they didn't have radio, they didn't have all those things where we get all of our news and what's happening. So most of it was coming from the pulpits of, uh, of the communities. And so uh, uh, Jeremiah 48.10 served as a text for many sermons in that period. Cursed be he that doeth the work of the Lord deceitfully, and cursed be he that tr- keepeth back his sword from blood. As the commander of the Continental Army, first president of the United States, George Washington spoke highly of Baptists because... Baptists supported the revolution. Baptists returned the favor. Washington spoke rarely of Christianity other than in veiled references to divine providence or in support of Christianity's utilitarian value and promoting good behavior. 
But uh, one Richard Furman, a Baptist leader from Charleston, South Carolina, compared Washington to Moses and Joshua, extolling him as God's gift to America. Similarly, John Leland, there's another name uh, we could spend some time on. John Leland, uh, the Baptist defender of separation of church and state, saw uh, the deist Thomas Jefferson as God's gift and as a hero, hailing him as an apostle of liberty. Uh, may, may not have had the same theology, but uh, uh, they were working together in the sense of, of knowing that what God uh, needed to do in this uh, the establishment of this country. By the way, John Leland was very influential on James Madison. And James Madison went to uh, the, con- uh, the Continental Congress, and when they were writing the Constitution and was instrumental in getting the Bill of Rights established and a, a part of the, our, our Constitution, which has Amendment Number 1, says no establishment of, uh, of religion by the government. Okay, so uh, a Baptist preacher influenced one of the men in uh, the leadership at that time, and uh, things were put into place in our Constitution uh, because of this influence. Now let me relate to you a story of, of John Peter Mullenberg. Although he was not a Baptist preacher, uh, it, this was typical of what was taking place uh, in churches in that day. It was on a Sunday morning early in the year of 1776 in the church where Pastor Mullenberg preached. It was a regular service for his congregation, but a quite different affair for Mullenberg himself. His text was Ecclesiastes chapter 3, where it explains uh, to everything there is a season, a time for, uh, uh, for every purpose under heaven, a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to pluck what is planted. And then coming to the end of his sermon, Peter uh, Muhlenberg turned to his congregation and said, in the language of Holy Writ, there was a time for all things, a time to preach and a time to pray, but those times have passed away. And as those assembled looked on, Pastor Muhlenberg declared, there is a time to fight, and that time is now coming. And Muhlenberg then proceeded to remove his robes, revealing to the shock of his congregation a military uniform. Marching to the back of the church, he declared, who among you is with me? And on that day, 300 men from his church stood up and joined Peter Muhlenberg, and they eventually became the 8th Virginia Brigade fighting for liberty. Now, it was Franklin Muhlenberg, Peter's brother, uh, who was against Peter's level of involvement in the war. And there would be some today who would say, uh, you know, preachers shouldn't have any involvement in the political uh, process today. Uh, preachers should just preach the word of God, and that's, that's all they need to do. We just need to, uh, they need to be silent. Frederick uh, uh, didn't think Peter was uh, supposed to be involved in that uh, Uh, in that war. But Peter responded to Frederick's writing. He said, I am a clergyman. It is true. But I am a member of the society as well as the poorest layman. And my liberty is as dear to me as any man. Shall I then sit still and enjoy myself at home when the best blood of the covenant is spilling? And so far am I from thinking that I act wrong. I am convinced it is my duty to do so. And duly I owe to God and my country. I'm not going to uh, advocate picking up guns this morning and starting a revolution, all right? That's not my, my purpose here this morning. But my point this morning is that since before the founding of our country, 
preachers, including Baptist preachers, have been involved in helping shape the Christian character of our country. And we live in a day where the Christian character is waning and fading away. And so what should we as God's children and citizens of the United States of America be doing in our day? Should we isolate ourselves and just hope things don't get too bad? Or should we take an active role in the political process? Now it's thought by many that America is a democracy. Contrary to frequent descriptions, America is still a representative republic, not a democracy. A representative republic, on uh, the other hand, protects the rights of all citizens, not just the majority. It's founded on the principle of elected individuals representing the people, with elections providing the opportunity for change. And for many, these are difficult days. A lot of good people are finding themselves in tough situations. Some have lost their homes, others have lost their jobs, and many uh, have lost hope that things will ever get better. In the last presidential election, there was a call for change. And there are those who are of the opinion that the answer lies within government. Somehow, you know, a certain president or a political party would be able to offer that change that we need. And the reality is that no party, no government, no president is equipped to offer genuine hope for a better future. The problems we face are the symptoms of a greater complication that plagues our world. It's a sickness that cannot be healed by a leader of a country or the passing of laws. It's a disease that can only be cured by the one who brings hope. It will not come from a man or a woman who campaigns for outward change, but the one who changes people from within. And soon we're going to be going to our voting places once again, and we're going to be electing leaders to represent us in our government. And so what is the obligation of the Christian in the political process? Now as a church and as your pastor, I I, uh, do not endorse specific candidates. In fact, it's against the law for me to do that. I will not tell you whom you should vote for in your local, state, and national elections. But I will share with some biblical principles and some personal suggestions for discerning for whom to vote. Psalm 11.3 says, If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? So what can we be doing? Well, let's look first at the Christian standing. The Christian standing. The standing of a Christian is that he's got dual citizenship. We're, number one, a citizen of heaven. Philippians 3.20 says, For our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. As believers, we are citizens of heaven. That's really our home. No, this world is not my home. I'm only passing through. There's truth to that. There's biblical truth to that. We are citizens of heaven, but we are also citizens of this earth. In Acts chapter 22, verse 25, it says, And they bound him with thongs 
Paul said unto the centurion that stood by, Is it lawful for you to scourge a man that is a Roman and uncondemned? And when the centurion heard that, he went and told the chief priest, saying, Take heed what thou doest, for this man is a Roman. And then the chief captain came and said unto him, Tell me, art thou a Roman? He said, Yea. And the chief captain came and said unto him, And the chief captain answered, With a great sum obtained I this freedom. And Paul said, But I was freeborn. And then straightway they departed from him which should have examined him. And the chief captain also was afraid after he knew that he was a Roman and because he had bound him. Yes, Paul was a citizen of heaven, but he is also a citizen of Rome. And we are citizens of heaven first and citizens of a particular country second. We're living in days when our government is hostile to biblical and Christian values. We have seen the refusal to enforce the Defense of Marriage Act, protecting biblical marriage and support of same-sex marriage. We have seen a disrespect for Christians by our president by refusing to host the National Day of Prayer, yet he'll host iftar dinners in honor of Ramadan. And when serving in Congress, our president voted against a law that gives constitutional protections to babies who survive failed abortion. Even our new health care program forces us to believe, uh, who believe that abortion is murder to pay for abortions with our tax dollars. You see, there is a systematic removal of any Christian reference, even in the public square. For example, Bibles or religious literature are not allowed to be given away during visits to patients in the Walter Reed Medical Center. And yet the Air Force paid $80,000 to add a Stonehenge-like worship center for pagans, druids, witches, and Wiccans. And so as a people with dual citizenship, we have a dilemma. What should we do? Well, notice there's a biblical mandate. A biblical mandate. First of all, we need to pray for our leaders. Jeremiah 29, 7 says, And seek the peace of the city, whether I have caused you to be carried away captives, and pray unto the Lord for it. For in the peace thereof shall ye have peace. 1 Timothy 2, 1-4 says, I exhort you therefore that first of all supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come into the knowledge of truth. We need to pray for our leaders. We need to pray for those who are in authority over us. Secondly, we need to obey our leaders. Romans chapter 13 very clearly says, Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained by God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. Titus 3.1, put them in mind to be subject to the principalities and powers, to obey magistrates and to be ready to every good work. 1 Peter 2, verse 13 through 17 says, Submit yourself to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to a king as supreme or unto governors 
as unto them that sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. For so is the will of God that with well-doing ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men as free and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God, honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the king. That's the Bible's instructions for us. And sometimes we have a hard time doing those things, don't we? Pray for your leaders. Obey your leaders. And thirdly, vote. You know, the sad thing is that many people say, well, it's not going to do any good. Why go vote? There's a very great importance in voting. One vote can make a difference. Down through history, we've seen this over and over and over again. The Draft Act was passed just four months before Pearl Harbor by one vote. Statehood was given to California, Idaho, Oregon, Texas, and Washington by one vote. Now, we'd probably like to get a hold of that guy that voted for that for some of those states, but... But it was one vote. Marcus Landslide Morton was elected governor of Massachusetts by one vote. In the Electoral College, Thomas Jefferson was elected president of the United States by one vote. And so for the believer, voting really is an act of faith. You know, it's a statement of who, or she, uh, who he or she is in Jesus Christ. It's an expression of what we believe and who we trust in. For the believer, voting is not about party affiliation or family history. Instead, it should be about principles and beliefs. In any given election, only about half the eligible voters vote. But it's not about politics, it's about values. We vote because Christianity is under attack. Our values are under attack. We vote to protect our values by voting for those who hold our values, our Christian beliefs. And so, fourthly, we need to be involved. God cares about politics. Someone has said, it is inconceivable that God would ordain government and then ask His people to stay out of it. You know, if God put it into place, then we should be a part of it as well. Jesus and the New Testament apostles addressed the political issues of their day. Paul used his Roman citizenship to help promote the gospel. And so we need to be involved. Now, what would be some practical guidelines? Well, first of all, we need to discern the political versus the biblical issues. I could name many, many issues this morning, but we'll look at four. Number one is marriage The Bible begins with a marriage. God performed the first wedding, if you please, in Genesis chapter 2. Jesus, his son, performed his first public miracle at a wedding in John chapter 2. And the book of Revelation concludes with a wedding, the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19. So from beginning to the end, the Bible talks about marriage. God created male and 
female. Genesis 1, 27 and 28. So God created man in his own image, and the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them, and God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and replenish the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. God created Adam and Eve, and all married couples to be one flesh. Genesis 2.24, Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. In fact, marriage is one of the chief ways God uses to explain himself. In Ephesians 5.22 and 23, it's a sobering reminder to a Christian uh, and to Christian couples that their marriage is to be a picture of the world uh, to the world, of Christ's love for his bride, the church. Ephesians 5, and 23. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as the head, Christ is the head of the church and is the savior of the body. The husband is the defender, protector of the wife and of his marriage. And if a husband fails to uh, it, it's like a castle allowing the enemy to enter in by lowering the drawbridge and uh, 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 opening up the gates of the fort. Well, same-sex marriage is an antithesis of biblical marriage. It's just the opposite of what God teaches. Don't let anybody tell you they can be a Christian and be involved in a same-sex marriage. If they're a Christian... They're a disobedient Christian. And God's not going to bless their life. I would doubt whether they are a biblical Christian or not. But, you know, constantly the Bible makes reference to male and female and procreation. People or animals of the same sex cannot procreate. Homosexuality, adultery, fornication, and pornography are all attacks on divine marriage. And that's why God has very specific commands against them. Leviticus 18.22, Thou shalt not lie with mankind as with womankind. It is an abomination. Can you get any bigger word or, or more strong word than that? Romans 1. 26 and 27, for this God, got, uh, this cause, God gave them up into vile affections, for even their women did, ex- did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust toward one another, men with men working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves the recompense of their error which was meet or fitting. Marriage is an important issue. You need to know where your candidate stands on this issue of marriage. Secondly is abortion. Genesis 9, 6, Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God made he man. Psalm 139, verse 13, For thou hast possessed my reins, thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and in my and that my soul knoweth right well. My substance was not hid from thee when I was made in secret and curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Thine eyes did see my substance, yet being unperfect, and in my thy book all my members were written. 
which in continuance were fashioned, when as yet there was none of them. One of the greatest passages of Scripture against abortion. Jeremiah 1.5 says, Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. And before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee, and I ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. You don't know what that little baby that was killed, what God had in mind for them. Abortion. Thirdly, there's a redistribution of wealth. This is involved with those who have been involved, and we don't talk about communism much today, but there's a lot of socialism going on today and being promoted in our own country. 2 Thessalonians 3.10, For even when ye were, we were with you, this we commanded you, that if any would not work, neither should he eat. There should be a lot of hungry people in this country. Proverbs 10 and verse 4 says, He becometh poor that dealeth with a slack hand, but the hand of the diligent maketh rich. There are many wealthy people in the Bible, yes. There was Abraham and Job and David and Solomon, Nicodemus. Nowhere does the Bible suggest their wealth should be taken away from them and equally distributed to all the others. Nowhere do you find that. Jesus didn't take the rich young ruler's wealth away from him. But he told him, give it to the poor. Peter told Ananias and Sapphira that their property and money were theirs to use as they wished. But they lied to the Holy Spirit. And immediately after Pentecost, the early Christians did bring all their possessions and hold them together in common. But this was a temporary situation to care for the deluge of believers from all over the world who had come to Jerusalem. Proverbs 14 and verse 31 says, He that oppresseth the poor reproacheth his maker, but he that honoreth him hath mercy on the poor. Proverbs 22, 2, The rich and the poor meet together. The Lord is the maker of them all. Proverbs 29, 14, The king that faithfully judgeth the poor, his throne shall be established forever. forever. Remember the, when the woman with the alabaster jar of oil poured it on Jesus' feet, and the disciples came indignant, saying, It should have been sold and given to the poor. Jesus replied, The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. Redistribution of wealth. Find out where your candidate stands upon the socialist programs that are being promoted today. Number four is debt. And although debt is not a sin, it is a spiritual issue. The Bible does warn about it. Proverbs 22, 7, the rich man ruleth over the poor and the borrower is servant to the lender. And we could spend a long time talking about all the verses of Scripture, how that debt often causes suffering, how that debt must be repaid. And so we need to discern the political versus the biblical issues. Secondly, we need to vote values. Not necessarily a party, not, not a political activism, but voting is a part of the creative ordinance whether that, rather than the redemptive ordinance of God. Now someone may ask, well, can a believer, a Christian, vote for an unbeliever or someone from another religion? Well, we do live in a fallen world. Sin has tainted everything. We never make choices between perfect and imperfect. Every choice we make, whether it's our house, our car, even our spouse, and even your pastor is an imperfect choice. 
The question is, can a born-again Christian vote for an unbeliever? I think the answer is still yes. The election of a president or any other civil office is an election of a human government, not spiritual leadership. And we can vote for candidates who are not Christians, for the issue is not the leadership of a local church, but civil leadership. And yet we must examine the candidate's values and determine which candidate is closest to the biblical values. What is not an option is apathy. You know, thinking, well, that must be God's will. There's nothing I can do. I'm just not going to vote. I'm going to sit out this election. I've heard Christians say that. You know, I'll have to choose between the lesser of two evils. And since politics is evil, I'll just stay out. But you know what? Every one of us is evil. There's none righteous. No, not one. And then again, there's the, and this is kind of my personal opinion, writing for, voting for a write-in candidate is kind of a, uh, a waste of time. We have a two-party system. It's like, uh, you know, if uh, the football team says it's going to play two teams, <laughs> their actions are going to be divided. How can you play two teams at the same time? Third-party votes usually uh, don't help the situation. Well, the third thing we need to do is examine party platforms. That's the statement of belief of a candidate's party. If the party platform is anti-life, anti-Christian, anti-church, anti-family, anti-God, then how can we support it? Compare the candidates' views. Look at their individual views on these crucial issues. Do your homework. Examine their personal views. And then be kind in your dialogue with people who have opposing views. You know, so much is at stake in these elections... And we must try to persuade others to vote for candidates who hold biblical views or values. But we should never stoop to name-calling. You know, here are some of those derogatory names that were used in one presidential election. He was called a despot, a liar, a thief, a braggart, a buffoon, a usurper, a monster, an ignoramus, a perjurer, a robber, a swindler, a tyrant, a butcher, and a land pirate. You know who was called those things? Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln. In his 1858 run for Senate, Stephen Douglas accused Lincoln of being two-faced, to which Lincoln, in his usual wit, replied, I leave it to my audience. If I had another face, do you think I'd wear this one? You know, there, you can catch more flies with honey than you can with vinegar. But you know what? Uh, a rank liberal should be able to say, those people at Spooner Baptist totally disagree with me, and they're passionate for their beliefs. But you know what? They've treated me with dignity and respect. Be kind. And then, don't despise our heritage. With all the faults and problems, I'm still glad to be an American. Because at least I'm free. We have a rich Christian heritage. 
And unfortunately, that history and that heritage has been espunged from our textbooks and our classrooms and our public life so that even most Christians don't know about it. But our nation is in trouble. And it's, the sal- it's salvation. It's salvation is not in politicians. Our founding fathers put fate of this nation in the hands of we the people. Psalm 11.3 says, If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Only a revival can save this country. And so we need to pray for revival. The final most important thing we can do in this election season is to begin to pray or continue to pray for revival. Some of you have been praying that way many years. Don't quit. Don't give up. Maybe if we spend as much time praying as we do blasting our opponents, we would see more results that are positive. Of course, Second Chronicles 7.14 says, If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. I believe that only not applied to Solomon's day, but it can apply to our day as well. We need to thank God for our freedoms. We need to not take them for granted. And we need to be a good citizen of heaven as well as a good citizen of this earth. Our message this morning is a little bit different than we usually have, but you know, I trust that we'll be challenged to be not only good citizens of heaven, but good citizens here on earth. And so let's bow in prayer and then we'll sing our closing song. Father in heaven,